0: Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 19. And we'll be in verses 1 through 6, and we'll get there in a couple of minutes. This morning, we're closing out a sermon series for the summer called Questioning Our Faith. And uh, a while back, uh, Aaron sent out a questionnaire and just asked you to list some things that you found challenging to your Christian faith. And you had a great response to that. We had dozens of responses, over 80, I believe. And from those responses, Aaron put together the summer sermon series. And so some of the things that we talked about, is Christianity really the only true faith? Is God genocidal? Are Christians hypocrites? We talked about gender and sexuality. Is Christianity misogynistic? Is the Bible trustworthy and true? Does God condone slavery? challenging topics for us. And so why do we talk about these things? And I think the answer is obvious. These are just matters of life, not just for us, but for the world. But for us, especially in the church, it's important that we be able to talk about these things, that we know how to think about these things. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, Paul wrote, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live, In order to please God, as in fact you are living, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul writes to this church partly for the purpose of just instructing them how to live as believers and for the purpose further of them glorifying God, being pleasing to God in their life. 2 Peter 3.1, Peter wrote, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. So we talk about these things in part just to help us know how to think. It's it's important that as Christians we know how to think rightly about anything, but I think especially about challenging topics like the ones we've been talking about this summer. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So we don't just want to know how to think, but we'd like to think together. We'd like to be thinking along the same path and in the same direction. And this is a great scripture because, in addition to talking about unity of mind, Paul sort of expands that idea. Being like minded includes being like hearted. Even being of the same love. It's important that we love as a church in the same way. This contributes to our unity as a body. And finally, in Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So in addition to being like-minded together as a body of believers, even more importantly than that, we want to conform to the mind of Christ. We want to be in unity with him and with each other, and we're at our best when we do that. Studying God's word should unify us in our thinking, in our love, and in our hearts. And then a sermon series like this kind of reminds us that what we're facing today isn't new. Uh, I might be tempted to believe that what I'm experiencing is different, you know, new. Nobody's ever experienced what I'm experiencing. That's not true, of course. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10, he reminds me, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a case where one can say, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before us. And if I'm tempted to think that things are new, maybe I'm also tempted to think, well, they've never been this bad. And that may be true for me. Uh, in my life, I can't think of a time when the world and America and my culture has been this chaotic. But that's not true either. Genesis 6, we're introduced to Noah, the time just before the flood. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 1,500 years maybe into creation at this point, and things have gotten so bad that God is getting ready to kill every living thing except for Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. And maybe after a time it was better, but not for long. Genesis 18, a few hundred years after the flood, and Abraham is negotiating with God about Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities that have become so evil, God is getting ready to destroy them. Abraham's worried about this. He has family there. His nephew, Lot, lives there. And he asks God, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? He says, if I can find 50 people, will you spare these cities? God says he will. He says, 45, will you spare them? God says, I will. All the way down to 10. If I can find 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare them? God agreed that he would, and there weren't ten. We have more people in this room, more righteous people in this room, than were in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably more righteous people in your 242 group than lived in those cities. And so we're reminded that challenging times, challenging topics for God's people are nothing new. In an odd way, maybe that should encourage me I'm reminded that this isn't my home, that my hope is in heaven with Christ. That's a good thing. And so this morning we consider what I think is a pretty tame topic compared to some of the things that we've heard about this summer. Is Christianity anti-science? I think a more interesting topic is, is science anti-Christian? We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, It is related, actually, to our topic, but it's not our main topic, so we'll stay in our lane. It's Christianity Anti-Science. If you would stand with me, and I will read Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber and like a strong man, runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Thanks, you can be seated. This is a poetic passage of scripture. David has written this as a song. He presented this to the choir master, so they would have sung this psalm. And here David is writing about the glory and workings of God displayed in his creation. But more than that, more than just displayed, his creation declares his glory, it says, and proclaims his handiwork. Without speech, without words, What David calls creation's voice declares and proclaims God. God's creation is a silent, continual outpouring of expression about himself. Every day and every night, creation silently pours out speech and reveals knowledge, not just about God's existence and not just about his presence, but also about his glory and what he's made. This is fundamental to our Christian faith. We believe in one God who created everything. Genesis 1.1, the very first words of Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The prophet Isaiah writes in 42 verse 5, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And even in the New Testament, we see the same. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Christ, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God is the creator, but specifically in the Godhead, Christ created everything. And so we refer to this as God's general revelation to us. To all mankind, God has revealed himself in creation. And this is a theme in the Old Testament, and it's also a theme in the New Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is a passage of Scripture that we've visited a few times this summer. It's a very relevant passage of Scripture for us. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul is writing about the ungodly, the unrighteous, and he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. By the way, it's plain to us also. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The NIV says it's plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Again, creation revealing not just God's presence, not just the existence of a God, but the nature and character of God, his wisdom, his love, his goodness, even his justice, all displayed in heavens and all perceived by everyone. It says what can be God, what can be known about God is plain to them, his invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature, things we can't see have been clearly perceived, the general revelation of God. And we know this general revelation is not saving revelation. We read about the saving revelation of God in places like Romans 8 and John chapter 6. We know it's not his saving revelation because in spite of knowing God from his general revelation, people still reject him. But they don't reject him because they don't know him. They reject him because of sin. So how does this relate to the question before us today If our Christians anti-science? I think we'll see that our understanding of creation has a lot to do as Christians with our understanding of science. It'll help us to define a couple of terms, so we'll try to define Christianity and science. Christianity, for a very simple definition, worship and obedience to Christ based on the teaching found in the 66 books of the Bible. This would be a very Protestant definition of Christianity. But for much of church history, Christianity included the Roman Catholic Church. And for the purpose of our discussion today, it's going to include the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't until the 1500s and the Reformation with Martin Luther that our Protestant understanding of the modern church developed. And then strictly speaking, what is science? Lots of definitions for science. They're all fairly similar. We'll call it the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories. The physical and natural world, we would refer to that as Christians as creation. Another definition, very similar, the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world. Again, creation through observation and experimentation, science, For us, science is the study of the physical and natural world that God has made. As Christians, do we find ourselves opposed to the systematic study of the physical and natural world? No. Why would we be? For us, science is nothing more than the study of God's creation, this magnificent general revelation of himself to mankind. In fact, we're wired this way, to acquire knowledge and learning. Proverbs ten verse fourteen. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Proverbs eighteen, fifteen. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. God seems to have put it in me to want to learn about creation. And so where does this accusation against Christianity being anti science come from? And I think it turns out that it comes from several places. We'll talk about a few. This won't be an exhaustive list, but it's a relevant list. It's a short list, three places, and in no particular order. But one place that we see it originate is from the world of secular science, and I would specifically say primarily from the world of academia. So the universities can be a source of this idea that Christianity would be opposed to science. A few examples. Dr. Jerry Coyne was a professor of uh, ecology and evolution at the University of Chicago. He wrote a book called Faith Versus Fact. He said this, As the West becomes more and more secular and the discoveries of evolutionary biology and cosmology shrink the boundaries of faith, the claims that science and religion are compatible grow louder. If you're a believer who doesn't want to seem anti-science, what can you do? You must argue that your faith, or any faith, is perfectly compatible with science. And so one sees claim after claim from believers, religious scientists, prestigious science organizations, and even atheists, asserting not only that science and religion are compatible, but also that they can actually help each other. This claim is called accommodationism. But I argue that this is misguided, that science and religion are not only in conflict, even at war. But also represent incompatible ways of viewing the world. Science and Christianity, for Dr. Coyne, aren't just in conflict; they're at war. They're in, they're locked in a battle. But he raises a couple of points here that are important. Number one, just the inherent conflict he sees between religion and science, and I think especially between Christianity and science. For him. This is a legitimate conflict. He's committed himself to it. He's written a book about it. And the other thing he brings up is just this idea of worldview. And this becomes very important to the discussion. So I agree with a lot of what he's said here. I don't agree with his conclusion, but some of his thinking arriving at his conclusion, we would agree with just from opposite ends of the coin. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at Oxford. He's a Christian, and he tells a story of two Nobel Prize winners in physics, one of them an atheist, one of them a Christian, and he just tells the story to make this point about worldview. He says, these men both did great science. They both won the Nobel Prize. One's a Christian, one isn't. He just makes the point that the difference is not in the science. They look at the same science. They go about learning science in the same way. They go about executing science in the same way. They will use the same scientific method to maybe come to very similar conclusions. But he said what separates them is their worldview. And this idea of worldview becomes very important as we talk about science as Christians. Harvard University evolutionary biologist Dr. Richard Lewontin, expresses an honest, albeit more cynical perspective in justifying his commitment to science. Dr. Lewontin said, we take the side of science, he's talking as opposed to faith or religion, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our prior adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. taught at Harvard for almost 50 years. I admire his candor. This is a very transparent admission, I believe, on behalf of a secular scientist about a method of motivation that compels him to study science the way that he does. I don't believe that his perspective on science represents all of science, and I don't believe that his perspective on science even necessarily represents all of academic science, but his perspective on science does represent an extremely influential perspective in science, disproportionately influential perspective on science. It gives us a glimpse, perhaps, into the heart and mind of those that we find ourselves in opposition to. And finally, Dr. Steven Weinberg, Nobel Prize-winning physicist at the University of Texas, wrote this one's short. I think the world needs to wake up from its long nightmare of religious belief. And anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done. And may in fact be our greatest contribution <laughs> to civilization. It's not funny. It's just <laughs> honest. I appreciate his honesty too. Maybe more than the others, Dr. Weinberg finds himself in conflict with faith, and I would say especially in conflict with Christianity. But these gentlemen at least give us a flavor of an influential perspective in science. This would be a good time just to mention a couple of philosophies that are relevant to the discussion. These are academic terms, but you will come across them in this discussion. One is scientism. Scientism is a philosophy that just says that science modeled on the natural sciences is the only real source of knowledge. So this became somewhat popular in the 18th, 19th century. It's continued to grow in popularity. Positivism is another term that you'll hear closely related to scientism, maybe the philosophy that essentially undergirds scientism. And this is a philosophy made popular by the French philosopher Auguste Comte. And Comte claimed that, only, that the only valid data is acquired through the senses. Nothing was transcendent, nothing metaphysical could have any claim to validity. So religion, for example, could not claim to have any absolute truth. The only absolute truth we can know is going to come through sciences, things that we can perceive with our senses. And so some in science find themselves at war with Christianity. Christianity. A conflict I think that by default and from a certain perspective makes Christianity appear to be returning the favor, so to speak, in seeming conflict with science. So perhaps maybe more than Christianity actually being anti-science, maybe there's just that perception. Nevertheless, for many, the perception is reality. Who else raises this concern about Christianity being anti-science? In 2011, the Barna Group conducted a study that found that one of the six primary reasons young adults abandon their faith is their belief that Christianity is anti-science. Their study showed that 29% of 18- to 29-year-olds said that churches are out of step with the scientific world we live in, while 25% described Christianity as anti-science. I'll put an asterisk here. I think it's important uh, when we quote, studies, that we at least have some degree of skepticism. Studies classically do not reflect a good perspective on a question. I think that's probably the case here. That's not to diminish the importance of the question, point being that I think the percentage of young people who reject church and reject Christ only because they believe that the church is anti-science is probably small, I would think that it's much smaller than 25%. But the point being that a significant percentage of young people who leave the church would voice some sentiment along these lines, that they feel the church is just out of step with modern science. I want to take just a moment here to take a, a, just a short detour. I do think that for Christian parents, Christian educators, leaders in the church but really anybody in the church if you have the opportunity to be a mentor or a friend so this is really for everybody i think how we discuss issues with young people becomes important and specifically our tone just our bearing and demeanor in those discussions can be relevant in 2 Timothy 2 Paul is talking to Timothy Timothy is a young pastor a young elder And he's telling Timothy how he ought to deal with people that are opposed to him, that disagree with him. And he tells them that he needs to do that with patience and humility. Some uh, translations will say gentleness. And this is a point of personal conviction for me. I uh, I, I think at times we can risk our rightness which is another way of saying we can risk our influence in a conversation, even if we're correct, by bringing a bearing and a tone in the conversation that's just off-putting, and maybe often people will reject my tone as much or more as they'll reject the content of, of what I'm trying to say. So for me, maybe that's encouraging to somebody else. I think tone in conversation is important. And then what about... From within the church, could this be another place that this question of, is Christianity anti-science originate? I think it is. I want to give you one of the comments that came back from somebody at CBC on this topic. I don't know who it is. If you're here this morning and you recognize this as your comment, thank you. And I don't bring this up to call anybody out and certainly not to embarrass or shame. This comment probably presents today's question in a more relevant context and from a more relevant perspective than the simple question is Christianity anti-science. The question on the card that went out was, name some topics that make you question your faith. This person responded. The issue of science. How can faith rise above science? The Bible is out of date in addressing issues of our culture, marriage, gender, sexuality, etc. I'll read it again. What makes you question your faith? The issue of science. How can faith rise above science? The Bible is out of date in addressing issues of our culture, marriage, gender, sexuality, etc. And no doubt a statement like this represents a common perspective outside the church. But does it increasingly reflect a sentiment that we would find inside the church? I think it does. This comment presents three implications that actually become relevant to our question today as it relates to the broader definition of the contemporary understanding and perception of science. The first implication, how can faith Rise above science. This implies that science, whatever we believe that to be, is more foundational and necessary than faith in our perception of the truth. The second implication, let me back up for just a second. I think that first one would harken back to our definitions of scientism a few minutes ago. This idea that the only objective knowledge can be obtained through science and nothing else. That would make science a very foundational item for someone who has this perspective. Number two, the Bible is out of date. This implies a belief that Scripture was relevant, perhaps in its day, but at some point in history, it's become less relevant, maybe even irrelevant to Christians, to Christianity. Maybe that something else should guide our thinking and belief about the issues of life. Maybe something like science. And then the third implication as it regards science and scripture in the context of what they would say are issues of culture, and they specifically mention marriage, gender, and sexuality, implying that ideas, even cultural issues, are now somehow intertwined into our contemporary understanding of science. As I was preparing in my notes, at some point I started writing science. Science in quotes. As if to indicate that somehow it's morphed into something other than what we've traditionally known it to be. And we see that in the cultural context that science has become a very fluid concept, able to mean whatever the user wants it to mean, depending upon the context of the moment. So are these implications from the survey comment true? Is science actually the ultimate truth upon which all else I believe in rests? Has scripture essentially expired in terms of its authority and relevance? And if so, what else am I to look to to guide my belief and behavior? Again, I think this person would suggest that science would be what I'm to look to and do the challenging cultural issues of the day redefine what science actually means? And gently, humbly, hopefully patiently, I would suggest that we as Christians should instinctively feel resistance to these ideas. They are not true. And that our faith is more fundamental to our existence, both natural and eternal, than science is, or even Legitimate science is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer writes, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is a unique aspect of our Christian faith. We actually do believe that faith is the substance. Faith, not science, not what we can just determine from empirical data or experimentation, but faith is the evidence. This is the issue of Christianity that Dr. Coyne takes such issue with, that he wrote a book about. For him, it is impossible to reconcile this idea that faith would give us reason to believe substantially in anything, that only science could accomplish that. In John chapter 20, Thomas is meeting the risen Christ for the first time, and we recall his doubt. And so Christ invites him to look at his hands and look at his side. Thomas does and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God values the faith of his people who believe despite not having seen. It's a distinguishing feature of the Christian faith. We also believe that Scripture is timeless in its truth and application. Matthew 24, 35, Christ said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Scripture is timeless. We believe it to be true. John seventeen seventeen in his priestly prayer. Praying to the Father, Christ said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We believe unwaveringly in the truth of Scripture. That's never changed. And then finally, we believe that science itself in its best and truest form actually means something. And something similar to the original definitions that we wrote down, not in the vein of scientism, but in the traditional academic definition of science it's just the examination the systemic study of the natural world and for us we believe that that should affirm the truth about what what God has made in creation just as Psalm 19 and Romans 1 assert and so is Christianity anti-science again in the strict sense I would say no but when science is uncertain or fails we're simply no longer science, but a synonym or euphemism for whatever philosophy of the day is demanding our attention and obedience. Are we opposed to that? I would say sometimes, yes. Because we, can, we feel compelled to uphold truth. Dr. Amir Azel was an Israeli mathematician, PhD mathematician. He's passed away. But in 2014, he wrote an opinion piece called Why Why Science Does Not Disprove God in Time Magazine, of all places. I'd like to share a couple of excerpts. They're long, so bear with me. Dr. Zell said, Science is an amazing, wonderful undertaking. It teaches us about life, the world, and the universe. But it has not revealed to us why the universe came into existence nor what preceded its birth in the Big Bang. Biological evolution has not brought us the slightest understanding of how the first living organisms emerged from inanimate matter on this planet. Neither does it explain one of the greatest mysteries of science. How did consciousness arise in living things? Where does symbolic thinking and self-awareness come from? What is it that allows humans to understand the mysteries of biology, physics, mathematics, engineering, and medicine? and what enables us to create great works of art, music, architecture, and literature. Science is nowhere near to explaining these deep mysteries. He continues, But much more important than these conundrums is the persistent question of the fine-tuning of the parameters of the universe. Why is our universe so precisely tailor-made for the emergence of life? This question has never been answered satisfactorily, and I believe that it never will find a scientific solution For the deeper we delve into the mysteries of physics and cosmology, the more the universe appears to be intricate and incredibly complex. To explain the quantum mechanical behavior of even one tiny particle requires pages and pages of of extremely advanced mathematics. Why are even the tiniest particles of matter so unbelievably complicated? It appears that there is a vast, hidden, and he puts in quotes, (laughs) wisdom or structure or blueprint for even the most simple-looking element of nature. And he says the situation becomes much more daunting as we expand our view into the entire cosmos. I just appreciate his honesty. He's, a, he's an evolutionist. He's not a Christian, and yet, in creation, he just kind of gets it. There's just something about it that science can't explain. Can we prove we're not anti-science? Sorry. We could recite a long list of notable Christian scientists, past and present. People like John Lennox, Robert Boyle, Antoine Lavoisier, Michael Faraday, Gregor Mendel. I'm just trying to make the point that there's a bunch of them. Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was not an Orthodox Christian, but he was a fervent believer in God. He felt God was essential to the existence of space, and he said, Gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. God governs all things and knows all that is or can be done. In her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin lists nearly a dozen Christian professors at MIT. We could elaborate on the contribution of the Reformation. To the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries, we could remind ourselves of the multitude of hospitals and universities throughout the world that were founded by Christians for the purpose of glorifying God and service to humanity and education, including science. The motto of Oxford University Dominus Illuminati Omea, Latin for The Lord is my light, from Psalm 27 inscribed on the facade of Emerson Hall at Harvard, which ironically houses the uh, philosophy department. What is man that thou art mindful of him? From Psalm 8, verse 4. We could attend debates, vigorously take up our arguments with the world. I don't think that's a bad thing to do. I think there's a place for Christians in the academic debate. Paul did this in Acts 19. In Ephesus, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But do we need to prove that we're not anti-science? And I would say probably not. We're called to something better. We're called to Christ. And so we have an opportunity here for self-reflection. In my family, at my work, in church. In my own heart and mind, am I more known for what I oppose than for what I'm for? More specifically, for whom I'm for? There's no doubt that as Christians, we unapologetically reject many things. We reject sin, our old way of life, our flesh. We reject our own sense of importance and are called to see others as better than ourselves. We reject the world's standard of success. We believe that the last shall be first, the least shall be the greatest, the humble shall be exalted. We believe that Christ makes the weak strong. We reject Dr. Lewontin's materialism as being absolute. We reject a broad, easy path for a difficult, narrow road. We reject the pleasures of sin for a season for the eternal glory that we'll have with Christ in heaven. But we reject these things in exchange for God's free gift to us of forgiveness in Christ, accepting Christ's sacrifice in our place for new life, free from sin in him, and for adoption as his sons and daughters into his kingdom. This is the message of the gospel. We commit ourselves to Christ's great commission in Matthew 28. Our commitment is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Christ says, Behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age, he's never become less relevant or irrelevant. Are we anti-science? I'll confidently say that we're not. But I can understand why some think that we are. Scripture promises that today and tonight, God will reveal himself and his character to all people through the silent voice of his creation. I'll close with this. John 13, Christ commands us that we draw people to him by loving each other, loving each other well. We might call this the church's general revelation of God to the world. Christ says in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, God, for your creation. Thank you for your goodness in revealing yourself to us every day and every night. Lord, your creation silently pours out knowledge about not just your existence, not just your presence, but of your nature and your character. Lord, we are so grateful. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to love one another well. And Lord, that we might be a revelation to those around us. Father, make us fruitful today. Lord, we pray for those who would think of us as being anti-science, that you would give them eyes to see us better, that you would help us to be better. Make us fruitful people, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.